0: question that intrigues and interests many people who are involved in the Chabad culture in Lubavitch today, because we face a real serious um, crisis of uh, reconciliation and balance. Everybody knows the old Chabad tradition, it talks about Bittle. Bittle and humility and it's not about me. And of course, in the modern world, we've become so ins- incredibly sensitive to the, uh, the effects on self-esteem and a person being psychologically healthy and having a positive sense of self and so forth and so on. And to many, many people, these two themes, uh, things seem to be uh, contradictory. Now, first of all, to be sure, I believe that the discrepancy between the Hasidic idea of Betel and the modern kind of self-esteem is rooted in an in a abuse of Hasidus. In other words, if you go back to the time when Chabad Hasidus in the old country was healthy, before old Tzadus, you would not have found this idea that being a Hasid is, you know, breaking yourself and shattering your fellow. Just tonight, one of my students mentioned to me um, how Chassid was fabranging with Bacharim and talking to him about Bittel, and an elder Chassid from Lubavitch interrupted and said to him that in Lubavitch they didn't put people down. They certainly didn't put young people down. They actually built them up. Bittel is a madrege, Bittel is a high level, and um, as the expression is, first you have to be a Matthias, First you have to be a somebody, and then you can choose for yourself a path of bittle and humility in order to be a deeper and more meaningful chassid. So, I I honestly believe that in truth the reason we have a discrepancy between the chassidic idea of bitl and the modern idea of self-esteem is because one or both are distorted, are unhealthy and not correct. And proper Bittle and proper self-esteem are not only not incompatible, but they're actually literally a hand and a glove. Having said that, we have a maimed tonight which is actually a mystical commentary on this question, the balance between self-esteem and bittal. And what's so outstanding and extraordinary about this maimed is that the Rebbe doesn't only explain it psychologically, he also explains it mystically and spiritually. In other words, we're going to talk about the idea that there is a place for bittal, but there is also a place for Methias, for form, for self-identity. And even the idea of yesh, you know, recognizing oneself and one's accomplishments and one's achievements. Both of them have a real place in Yiddishkeit. they are two steps. They, one happens before and one happens after. This mime is going to argue very convincingly for the need for healthy self-esteem, for the need for a person having a very strong uh, sense of self and self identity, and how Bittel is a is a higher dimension, is a deeper dimension, is a subsequent dimension, and is going to argue, practically, in other words, psychologically and mystically, that if you skip the initial step of strengthening self esteem and inha- and giving a human being a sense of a healthy ego and self identity, not only are you depriving yourself of what is psychologically healthy? You're actually depriving yourself of what is spiritually necessary. In other words, this mind is almost advocating that level one in Avoida Hashem should be egocentric and only level two should engage, should involve a higher Avodah and a level of Bittu and so forth and so on. And when you learn this mind, you will find, to your surprise, that as they say in the real world, How come I didn't know this until now? Nobody ever showed me this Meimah because you will find that this Meimah from the Alter Rebbe clearly has a very, very healthy perspective on the balance between Bittl and self-esteem and the problem is not with Hasidis, The problem is with our interpretation of it. Just a couple of little episodes as a uh, uh, salt and pepper, if you will. Everybody knows the story with the Mittel Rebbe. But the Mittler was very, very involved in the idea of Hasidim disseminating Hasidus. The policy was, Hasidim had a right to come to Lubavitch as frequently as they wished, to stay as long as they wanted, but the condition was that they should stop in every town on the way home and chazir a maimed, that means review a maimed they heard in Lubavitch. And some of the Mittler Hasidim became very proficient at it. They, became, they, they memorized well, and they delivered it in a way which was both passionate and lucid and uh, clear. So a came into the Mittle Rebbe and said, Rebbe, I'm going from town to town delivering chassidus, and I'm doing it so well that my ego was inflating me. And uh, the the Rebbe told him the the famous words, a tzibol from the veren, a the you, you, you may become an onion, which means something which is sharp and uh, not exactly pleasant, but you should continue to rev- to disseminate Hasidus. This story can be understood in many ways, and one of the ways this story can be understood is, the bottom line is you got to do what you have to do. If the result of doing a good thing is that there is an ego issue, the ego issue has to be addressed, but never at the expense of the good thing. Uh, ultimately a person can do many good things and get past his ego, but initially you cannot crush yourself on your possibility and your opportunities to do good things spiritually by crushing your ego. It's, it's not Yiddishkeit and it's not, it's, not, it's not normal, to be very candid. And secondly, there's a very, very famous Chosr, the Alta Rebbe, whose name was the Murcha Lepler. Lepler is famous for having been the Chassid whose home the Al Rebbe went to when he was released from prison the first time in, 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 18, in 1798. And of course, the story was that he lived upstairs and downstairs lived at Ibn the, the, the Mesnaget, and the Al Rebbe went into the wrong house and he spent several hours there and so forth. Ramachal Lepo lived in a big city, lived in Petersburg, in Petersburg, in the capital. And as we all know, living in the big city and being a chosid is quite a challenge. In other words, living in the shtetl with no plumbing and no electricity and no newspapers and no radio and no nothing, actually contributes to being a better Jew for obvious reasons. And this Ramachal Lepo lived in the big modern city and he was in the Madrig of Benini. And people would ask him, how do you maintain such a precise, such a constant level of Oedus Hashem with all this distraction and all this temptation and and so forth? And Remar Chaleplit said it's arrogance. Mm -hmm. That whenever I want to sin, I will say to myself, I, a follower of the Altar Eber, am I going to stoop so low? Am I going to compromise myself in such a way? And I'm able to contain myself using my ego. And in fact, the Altar Eber would say of this same Remar Chaleplit, that his derech and havoideh is one of a yigbali bebedarki Hashem. In other words, he serves Hashem using his ego. So the ego is not all bad. Like everything else, it has good and it it has bad. The key is harnessing it, using it in a proper context, and in a healthy set of priorities. And finally, I want to share something with you that I personally find intriguing. One of the ideas that this mind will revolve around is this concept found in the Gemara called Shminas Sheba The Gemara says, that the Gemara Masech HaSaita, that says that a Talmud Chacha must have at least a trace of an ego. The, the, if you're familiar with the Gemara and Saita, there are several passages in succession that talk about whether ego is a good thing or not a good thing. Some say it's, you know, nothing is good. If you have no ego, it's no good. And If you do have an ego, it's no good, and so forth. But the Gemara... Uses the famous expression that Talmud Koch needs to have a shminis, a A a essentially means a drop of a drop of an ego. What I want to share with you before we even begin is this. There's this new volume of Igor's Kaedish of the Friedike Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, that came out about a month and a half ago, which is entirely correspondence between the previous Rebbe and our Rebbe and Rebbesin. It is the most compelling volume. I encourage you to buy it and read it. And um, it's, it's a window into the very personal relationship between the Fezik Rebbe and the Rebbe, incredibly. And one of the little things that's there that people often miss is that the Rebbe had asked the previous Rebbe to explain to him this gemara. What this means. And it's interesting that in the footnotes there it's mentioned that the Rebbe had asked the same question of his father. Reb And there's a letter from Reb apparently to the Rebbe, published where Reb explains to the Rebbe about Shemines Shebhe And when the Rebbe asked the Pernidike Rebbe to explain to him Shemines the Rebbe's response to him was, you'll come, I'll meet you in person, and we'll talk about it. The Rebbe didn't want to write about it, he wanted to talk to him about it in person. Now, you can read this letter and just presume that the Rebbe was curious about Pshat and the Gemara. My personally personal Tendency, a personal inclination, and you can take it or leave it, is that the Rebbe himself understood that he needs a little bit of an ego, as a Talmud Chachem, and uh, he didn't have one at all, and he was writing to his father and to his father-in-law to have them, so to speak, give him counsel, give him guidance, give him a, a frame of reference of how to balance this question of Shemines to Shemines, I find this very, very compelling, and it's one of Many, many, many little subtleties in this volume of Iger's Kedish that reveal very personal things about that Rebbe. that if you don't pay careful attention, you can read that entire volume and just, it'll go straight past you. So let's begin the maimed. Now I have some very interesting news, and that is that we're doing this maimed in three weeks, which is terrific. We have a chance to learn it. It's a very long maimed. It's the suffice of Teter Ed. It's a maimed in the Office of the middle of written very beautifully, very lucidly. And the fact that we've been given three weeks with a maimé will allow us to learn it properly and to some extent at least with some degree of patience and deliberateness. And um, we can learn a maimé that if not for this, we would never be able to learn because it's simply too long. So we're going to learn a portion of the Maimah tonight, a portion of the Maimah with the help of God in a week, and then the final part the, the week after that all in preparation for Purim. This is the Purim Ka And at least a portion of this week is going to address the question of ego versus Bittl psychologically and very importantly, mystically, Kabbalistically. This Maimah is going to argue for the need for ego as it affects the higher world. Think about that. In other words, if a Talmud Chochem lacks an ego something happens up there, that's no good. Think how powerful that is. In other words, it's not just that because of the human psyche, it's necessary for a person to first develop a positive sense of self and then worry about a, a much deeper level of connection to Hashem, where since, there's nothing but God, I am not. You, have to, you must go through the ego-developing stage before you go through the ego-transcending Stage, but this Mime is going to argue that this is not only psychologically necessary; it's kabbalistically necessary. And without any further ado, let's begin the Maimon. Homan took the the uh, outfit of the king and the horse of the king, and of course he went out to find Mordechai Yehudi to dress him in this uh, outfit and to ride him on the horse and to give him honor. We'll get to Homan next week. I am sure no one's in a rush to get to Homan anyway. We'll get to Homan next week. But let's get to the ego. Hine amel razal the Gemara says, "Talmud Chacham is by Shminis A Talmud Chacham, a scholar, must have a drop of a drop, Shminis a trace of a trace. Literally, Shminis means an eighth of an eighth, and you'll see in this mind that that actually means one sixty fourth part ego. There has to be some degree of arrogance or or uh, sense of personal strength. Shanim as the Pasuk says, which means to say, the ego of Atamat Chacham hovers around, it's a crown around the Atamat Chacham as a bristle is to a stalk. When wheat grows, initially around the husks, around the kernels and the husks, as they grow on the wheat, there is some kind of an outer shell which is. This, which is called bristle in English. It's a it's a tough outer layer which is broken away and discarded when the kernels of wheat will be extracted and used for you know for flour for bread and so forth and so on. And this sossal shibulta, this bristle that surrounds the the stalks and the husks and the wheat, is very important because if it wouldn't be there, the wheat would not survive the elements. It protects it, and as soon as the wheat is Ripe and you extract the wheat, you would dispose of it. And this is, an, this is an ideal marshal for the ego. You have to start out with the ego or you won't survive. And once a person is healthy, they discard the ego and transcend to a higher level. That's the essential message of tonight's class. Let's explain the analogy how an ego to what Tamut Chacham is as a bristle that is protecting a stalk of wheat. In line 4, let's first explain what is the definition of a scholar. But we don't simply call them we call them Talmud which means a student of The illusion of a Talmud the student of Now, just tangentially, Rambam discusses Chocham in Hilchizedais and in other places. And there's a very big difference between a and a Talmud Chacham, naturally, a Chacham is on a much higher level. A Talmud Chacham means a disciple of a Chacham. Here this is explained mystically. Hainu Lafi, the meaning of disciple of Chacham means He's receiving from the level of Chachmah, which means to say Chacham itself is one who is actually at the level of Chachmah. Talmud Chacham means one who is not yet at the level of Chachmah but is exposed to Chachma. And what is Chochmah? Chachma is that intellectual tool that's all about submission and bitl. And Chochmah is a nullification of form, a bitl of total form, because one is in the presence of the sof. Tzav. is the creative intellectual tool. I, mean, I don't want to give you long lectures, but Chachma is the creative intellectual tool, Bina is the thorough and analytical intellectual tool, and Das is the personalizing intellectual tool. The creative intellectual tool functions primarily because of the capacity to get past yourself, to break your ego, to recognize the limitations of your prior systems and transcend yourself. So built into Chochmah inherently is Bittl. On both levels. On the human level, I bittle myself to be creative. And the transcendent level, the creative inspiration that I get humbles me. It's a higher kind of a bittle. So Chochmah is very 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 interconnected with the idea of bitl, but not bittul, which is simply breaking the ego. It's a much deeper bittul. It's a bittul of being completely overwhelmed by something transcendent, the Ein Sof. The only place where Ein Sof can manifest is in Chochma because of its bitl, as discussed in Tanya Chapter 18, and of course in the very famous footnote in Tanya Chapter 35, Dafka Consequently, the idea of the unity between God and His creation. On a lower level, on a higher level, huayedea davka is achieved by somebody who is at least a disciple of chochmah. In other words, the capacity for manifesting and realizing God is one with the world is connected not simply to scholarship but to chochmah. Ki Chochma shaboi because the chochmah of the person is the space, is the station can be manifest. What is the Ein Sof? It says the Rebbe, Vuhu, the Ein Sof is the light of Kesir, which is higher than Chachma which is called the, the will of God, so to speak. as the pasuk says, and he brings two psukim to corroborate this idea. panecha, the light of the divine countenance is khitat is connected to divine will. Peish, in other words, Sheyesh, oyr Shemeir, the light of Ein Sof is manifest leponim. On the countenance of godliness, so to speak. Vinika <speaking in Hebrew> it is called Ha'arath Param, the shine of the divine face, mystically speaking. Vazao bi'er panacha This is the idea that the light of the countenance of godliness is connected to will, which is keset, mystically. Vuadeharat, <speaking in Hebrew> the idea of will. <speaking in Hebrew> the will of uh, godliness. Vahainu bechinas edin sof, which is the idea of erin sof. Shemeir beponim which manifests on the countenance, the of chokma lekach, kiritzisam, which is why it's a place for the will of God to manifest. In other words, chokhmah's humility makes it the appropriate face for the Ein to manifest. The face of a person reveals everything about a person, if you know how to read a person. The face of godliness reveals everything about godliness, if you know how to read godliness. That face is chokma. This is also the idea of Yair Hashem Panevelech. Hashem should radiate His countenance to us. The idea of countenance means the place where the age self could manifest, which is Vidal. So what Talmud Chacham's greatest quality is that he's a student, not just of ideas, but of Bittl. Line 10. in Talmud Chacham. The idea of a Talmud Chacham therefore is that as say, his service to God Almighty is B'avavayira. Certainly he's in love with God then he's in awe of God. But it's B'chachmavadah. Since he's a student of Bittel, his entire service is Bittel. And if I may say it practically, service, which is Bittel centric, is quieter and deeper. And to him, Omru, notwithstanding that his natural tendency is to be Bittel, he's told, don't be Bittel. That this Talmud Chocham, as a disciple of Chachem, his natural tendency is to serve Hashem with a quiescence and with a depth and with a bittle. He said, have a little noise, have a little arrogance, have a little gaiva. He says, the Rebbe, this seems very strange. It seems very, very non And the Rebbe answers the question using the illustration of this, this entity which surrounds and protects a wheat until it's ripened and then it's disposed of. And the Nimshel, of course, is going to be First, you start out serving Hashem with an ego, even if you're a Talmud Chacham, and ultimately it needs to be disposed. The answer lies in the following analogy. Let's explain the bristle that surrounds the stalk. And he explains it very, very simply. A physical stalk of wheat. It has some kind of a crown, has some kind of a periphery. Which is called in Lash while the goof, ahita atma the wheat itself, Nikirahu and Nikashibult is called a stalk and a grain. Vine hachita wheat. Tzemach, as it grows, Iday by the sun shining. By the Akshamim through water. Kidu, as it is known. This is, you know, this is basic biology, which of course basic biology is sometimes not known by anybody. It's a combination of sun and carbon and an extract from the water that through a certain biological process produces the material of, of, uh, of plants. And of course its byproduct, its waste product is, is oxygen, which is of course one of the great benefits of, of uh, plants. But it's the combination of water, carbon and sunlight which produces anything that we eat. Says the Rebbe, so sun is good, water is good, too much sun, too much water, no good. Ba'amnam um, says the Rebbe, however, had the sherev, the chayim hashemish, a hot wind and the heat of the sun, hamak alachita, which may beat down on the wheat, ha'isem nistefes colour, it could be too much and be destructive. V'chein similarly, ayei deri bo lechasakshavim, too much moisture, shayon nechum alav, which would constantly drip on this stalk, ha'isem esakevis, it would decompose, it would rot. Ki'ari koven shelet menaleichus, rotting has to do with moisture. V'asreifav akiloyin menachem hayavish ki'duah. And being dried out has to do with too much heat. So sun is good, too much sun isn't good, moisture is good, too much moisture isn't good, and the solution to both of these is the crown that protects and surrounds the wheat. For this reason, line 16. This is this surrounding uh, hard, uh, this tough bristle. Which goes around the kernel of wheat and stalk of wheat. It becomes its guardian. To protect it, that the heat and light of the sun should not burn up the wheat. And the moisture shouldn't rot it. And this is because this, mutz, this crown, this periphery, takes into itself the heat of the sun, it bears the brunt of it. As well as the pressure, the pounding of the hot wind it also takes in all the excess, all the unnecessary, all the extra moisture and rain, that shouldn't all deluge the kernel and the stalk, so long as the wheat is growing, the crown protects the wheat, from all these negative effects, too much heat and too much moisture, and then of course, As soon as the wheat is ripened, you take off the protection, throw it in the garbage, and say, thank you very much for your service, we don't need you anymore, and you extract the kernel. And when the wheat has grown, this outer layer is disposed, through threshing, what remains for consumption is the wheat itself. And he goes on to say that this has manifestations in Allah. We know the halacha is and the requirement to give a tenth of one's crop as a tithe to the levi and so forth the halacha says that the only time, the only point at which produce becomes obligated to be tithed is when it's finished, when it's been ready, made ready to eat. Nigma malachta l'mayset the Gemara calls it. And she'ein it doesn't become fit for the tithe, until the kri has been mumurach. Now, if I am not mistaken, miruach is actually a final step in the harvesting of grain, where they would collect the wheat into a pile called a kri, and they would smoothen it out. That's what miruach means. But the connotation is that you're not going to actually have an obligation to give maithid until you've done all the pre- preparatory processes before, including the removal of this outer shell. Because man, so long as the pile of wheat has not been finished. It's exempt from the tithe. Because it includes waste, byproducts, uh, stuff that has to be disposed of, including this mutz, including this protective shell that is the only reason the wheat has survived. That Now that the wheat is ready for consumption, it's garbage. These secondary components themselves have no need to be tithed. Moreover, in fact, the wheat itself can be consumed so long as it hasn't been completed. So, not only does this secondary component of wheat have no mitzvah of maizad, but it exempts the wheat itself from maizad until it's totally done. So, what we're learning is that there's a secondary component that's so important that it preserves the wheat, and so long as it hasn't been removed, the wheat hasn't achieved a status that makes it fit for a mitzvah. and Kedusha, as you'll see soon, the Rebbe on line 23... The reason for this is... This crown is a, is a guardian of the wheat alone. Like any peel, like any shell, like any protection. You know, another example is a placenta. It protects a fetus, an unborn baby. According to Torah, it actually forms. First, the fetus forms within the placenta and as soon as the baby is born the placenta, the shilya, which formed first, is disposed. The famous lashna Shas is klipa ke lepri. First you have the shell, first you have the peel, first you have the protectorate, and then you have the fruit. But in the end, it's the fruit that's preserved and consumed and the shell that's disposed of. The idea of a tithe is giving 10%. And 10% goes on the 10th sphera. And in this case, it means the highest of the 10th sphere, which is Chokhmah, which is called holiness. That the 10th is holy. And again, in this case, holy doesn't mean Malchus. Holy means Chochmah. Holy means, as we call it before, behold, Bechol, it in every aspect. Because even the framework of the spiritual world, where is their holiness? Where is their Bittl? Where is their Aintsov? In the 10th level, namely Chokhmah. And dover, the tenth of each thing, mitam, the connection between the highest level and the lowest level. So in the lowest level you have the manifestation of chokhmah, And that's why the Kedusha lies there, v'adal. And therefore, the only point at which the Kedusha manifests is when you remove the secondary components. V'leyes, keinus, this is the kei, be Manifestation of holiness by giving your tithe. In other words, as it's represented by the ten percent that you're giving. It's a al gufa It's the fruit itself, klipa, not on the peel. The secondary component, which is the waste. canal. It's only a guardian of the wheat. Ki there cannot be holiness. There cannot be manifestation of Ein Sof bedavar atufel in something secondary, because that secondary thing is k'maya klipa. It's, it's mystically equivalent to klipa. Ella only on the deepest aspect shuuguf pachita, which is the wheat itself. therefore ad line twenty-eight. So long as you haven't completed the process of forming the pile or the bushel of wheat without its secondary components, the wheat itself is exempt from the maise. Because of the secondary aspects, which does not obligate them to maise. The holiness of maise cannot manifest. In them. So, what we're learning is that something which initially is incredibly important, eventually is so unnecessary And disposed to such a degree that it interferes with the celebration of the thing that it protected. Line 30. This is very interesting. This is not really a question. It's simply an observation of wonder. How can you take something that for such a long period of time was actually in a way more important than the weed itself and just say, I don't need it anymore, it's garbage. Aladafki the al only secondary. If not for this shell, for this outer protection, the wheat would not have survived. And yet, as important as it was before, now it's who cares? Ain't the answer is the BM is to be sure, see, but It is true. The only reason the wheat can grow properly, has to do with the secondary protective outer shell. Because it absorbs the, the excess heat and moisture. Once the fruit matures, it no longer needs a guardian that it's disposed of in a secondary way, as waste. It's still true, however, that while it was growing, it was a crown to the wheat. In other words, it was higher than the wheat this protective shell, keatora makefes is a crown which surrounds the head. It says and you must understand the Talmudic analogy. When the Gemara says that needs it's most precise, and the precision lies in the fact that initially a Talmud Chacham needs Gaiva. initially a Talmud Chacham needs shminis shabes Eventually, that shminis shabes will be disposed of, as is the husks as this hard bristle on the outside of the wheat will be once it's ripened. But initially, it's not only permitted to be, it must be. That's why this analogy is precise. Precise not only in describing its relationship with the Talmud Chacham, but its relationship with the process of being a Talmud Chacham. It's step one, and will eventually be disposed of, but it is a necessary, it's an imperative step one. The, this is why we use this analogy the ma'atar the Talmud Chacham's conceit, gaiva, crowns him as the protective shield crowns wheat this uh, hard outer shell protects the wheat as a crown hovers over the head of a king, kanal v'dal and ultimately it will be disposed of the same is true of the gaiva v'tal and there are two imperatives here a, eventually you will dispose of it, but B, you must have it at the outset. Continues the Rebbe on line 35, and he says, hanimshol Let's apply this to life, to practical avetet How do we explain that something which initially was so important will then become uh, secondary, uh, not important? It says, The Rebbe, although we explained before the content of a Tamat chach. Shuah sure. mispar be'ava ve'yida that his passions of love and fear mipnei his bondos bechokma since his love and fear is inspired or focused by chokma it has within itself bechinas bittel this quality of bittel mipnei she'ayin tzafshere bechokma v'chulu as the tzafsher is manifest in chokma. As I explained before, practically this means that it's a deeper, quieter avoider with less external passion because it has this kind of quality of depth. Will says the Gemara to this Talmud Chacham. excuse me, you need to have shminas at the outset. The way you would apply the analogy of a wheat and its protective shell to the Talmud Chacham. And his Shemines, would be as follows. That initially, you must have the protective shell, this Sinisref, as in the canvas, because otherwise it would be burnt and rotted. Lul, ya not for this protective shell, who how do you explain this in the life of Atamotchach? Do'an, or because we know, in fact, and The ever here makes a case for self-esteem as explicit and direct as you'll ever hear. She'kol mi, Hashem any person who engages in service of God including personal and deep service of God namely in other words not just to do the mitzvahs and study Torah but to engage in pursuing a relationship with God connected to davening it cannot be achieved without the attributes that are coarse or even arrogance and what is that? pride an ambition. The person must make himself self-important. Something of substance and significance. And I am important and therefore I should be a servant of God. And he's emphatically important as a servant of God. And if he's held back from being able to serve Hashem, he's in pain because of his ambition, because of his ego. He is important enough in his own eyes not to be one to be separated from God. Says says that it is true that this person's ambition is a good one. This person's motivation and drive is a relationship with God. This person is motivated by something sincere, meaningful, which is, he wishes to be close to God Almighty, he doesn't want to be separated from Him. It's true at the same time that this Yiddishkeit and this Yid is motivated by egocentricity, by Himself. Yeshba Zebrin, as there is clearly an arrogance, a conceit. He considers Himself of worth. And therefore, he says to himself, Shabbat Vidos, his service will bring him closer, and give God Almighty a delight and a pleasure. If he fails to serve Hashem, Hashem will be disappointed, and he will be disappointed. Shabbat calls that this entire design, there's a demand being made of him. Who, and he's the one being demanded from. Of course, who is demanding of him? In his mind, God is demanding of him, but as a practical matter, it's his ego that is motivating him to say, grow, achieve. So there's one commanding, demanding, pressing him to grow in the Vedas Hashem. He can get away with it and he refuses to. Because, not because he's so pious, but because he's so self-important. Line 43. Because, why is this true? That any really successful servant of God begins by employing ego and, and self-importance and so on, because we all naturally distant from God. Our basic nature is, you know, life's about me, it's not about God. If I'm going to change my identity and make myself into a servant of God I have to incorporate that same ego that same self-identity into that service as though he's fulfilling his obligation to himself and to his own self-worth line 45 so that Abba makes a very very clear case in the ten lines I just read not only for permission to engage with the ego but a concession that says it's almost impossible to begin a pursuit of serious avodas Hashem, without it, it says the Rebbe, line forty-five. Avo Let's say the truth. If this individual was somehow magically, miraculously, and naturally just in tune with godliness on a deep level, and depth is always quiet, without passion, without noise, without tomo, without struggle, he would have no need to negotiate with himself, there wouldn't be this ego issue that is uh, inspired as a motivator. Because if I'm naturally submissive to God, I don't have a logic for why I am his servant. It's inherently so. It's innately true. If this individual is naturally bottled to the truth of God, the aim, is me From the perspective of God, nothing but God exists. As the Pasuk says, There's nothing except for God. And if an individual is somehow naturally tuned into that perspective, so there's no need for an ego, there's no need for for ambition, there's no need for uh, goals. It's naturally the truth. And therefore there is no person which is motivated by his ego to do something, to give himself self-worth. And as a consequence, there's no inner struggle, and arguing, and debating, and demanding of oneself. All there is is God, bil alone. there's nothing other than God. So therefore, you're going to serve God, in an egoless way. Now, how many people do you know, are born that way? Well, I know one. Abraham was in that level. Who else? I don't know. Avraham Avinu's natural condition was one of loyalty to God. the describes him as says, Avraham was tested ten times and he had a totally loyal heart to God. There was nothing God could do that could break him. Read the book of Eve, read the Gemara of Abba Basra, how God is thinking that maybe Eve Job could be a second Abraham and Yitzhak says oh no no there's only one Avraham only one person who withstood every test and his loyalty to you didn't waver and when Hashem tests Job he fails in fact only Avram Avinu has his absolute loyalty and dedication to Hashem because Avram Avinu was beyond ego from birth his entire reality was godliness What does it mean that his heart was loyal? He never was in any way separate from Hashem. He should have two hearts. a Good inclination and a bad inclination. Now understand, if a person has a good and evil inclination and uses both of them in the service of God, which is wonderful. So first of all, there's a struggle because they're incompatible. And when you can harness your animal soul to be a partner and collaborator with your godly soul, so they're both on the same team, if you will, but the animal soul still is very noisy and very meistic, very ego-based, and therefore the service of Hashem reflects that external demonstrative self-centricity in the service of God. But getting back to Avraham Avinu, he didn't have those kind of issues, and therefore elarak levav erlevech had only one heart for God. Verotz nechet posher than one will for God, and therefore in his world, v'leishayech inyan taino tviyah, there was no inner struggle. K'ein ed mulvade v'cholukuz Avraham really lived in a world where there was only God. V'zeol lefanachav v'chol he stood in the presence of God Almighty. Line fifty-two. V'kasher levavei ne'eman and when one's heart is loyal to God beyond logic, beyond ego, all under those conditions God makes a covenant with Abraham because he was intimate with God on the level beyond a struggle. And Laseis Lazari, God Almighty gave him HaKnani, V'Achiti, V'Goyme, the seven Canaanite nations that mystically correspond to Zion seven negative attributes. Because when one is so one with God, so they are in a position to transform negativity into positive. Mamela, the seven negative attributes are automatically bottle. the in the presence of God there is nothing. The of nothing can exist in a way which is separate. And therefore Hashem is able to give Avramavinu these negative attributes. Because in Avramavinu they become automatically and naturally positive. Final says lezare and these States, these lands, and these emotions are given not just to Avram but to his children. They are given and become battle in the power of bittel, which is Hamiti, which is true. Avram's pure loyalty is such. Not that he overcomes his Yats at Heart or not that he deals with his inner struggles, but rather in Tainos Fataklub there never was a struggle. to have a self identity, so his desire to be close with God is almost as an extension of God himself. Kim never was separate from So in the person of Avinu, there was no need for the initial implementing of ego as a step in Avadis Hashem, he went straight to this higher Madrega of Bittl. And you'll see soon that this will turn out to be a liability on Avraham Avinu's part. Avram was the highest level of tzadik, and yet the fact that he didn't pass through the ego stage before transcending to the ego less stage actually turned out to be uh, not entirely favorable for Avram himself. But the rest of us don't have Avraham's issues. We got much more basic issues. Line 56. Most people don't start their lives egoless. And if we start our lives egoless, it's because we're just lazy, you know, unmotivated. That's also a lack of ego. But nobody has a lack of ego which is such a dedication to God that they're completely one with Him. Because to achieve... Such a degree of loyalty who even in Avram Avinu, was only perfected by Maila on the highest levels. Avraham hay when he got the extra hay and he became Avraham as opposed to Avram. after he was circumcised. Kaidim as opposed to prior to his circumcision. Shanikra Avram. He lacked the hay, it was called Avram, He produced the Yashmol, he produced the clip. Why did Avram produce a klipa? He hadn't achieved this high level of loyalty. Shubachinas klipa, the chesed elion, de kedusha. It is the periphery. It is the peel. It is the waste. It is the residue of the chesed of kedusha. Lefish Avram, de Avram was a chariot for the divine attribute of chesed of Atzilos, line fifty nine, and he therefore produced a corresponding klipa, which is Yishmo. Now later on in this maime, this very Maime chazal will be used differently. At the moment, we're saying that the reason Avraham produced the Yishmol is because he started out his life not on the highest level of loyalty. Later in the Maimah, the Maimah is going to say that in fact Avraham produced the Yishmol precisely because he started out his life on the higher level of loyalty. Now, it will sound, it does sound, blatantly contradictory, but when we get to the second version of it, I will address it again, I don't think it's a contradiction. But be that as it may, Avraham started out his life with this incredible loyalty. And even in him, says Demayman, at this moment, it was a maturation, which is why he produced a Yishmol. He advocated that Yishmol be his heir, his perpetuator of Yiddishkeit. And Hashem said no, because Avraham saw Yishmol as an appropriate successor, because he was in kind, the same attribute, kindness. Sheheim bechenes it is the residue of Avraham's chesed. Da'ainu, in other words, is pachit gam lamata, that the kindness of God should extend even down to the level of Yishmol, and raise him up, liyeis <laughs> Yishmol, to be Yishmol in a favorable way. Lefishabakei <laughs> chesed has kindness has the tendency laid at least to descend and manifest at the very lowest levels. Since it starts out on a very high plane, which is called the godly kindness. And what is godly kindness? Infinite kindness. And what is infinite kindness? of Nothing has any relativism to it. And therefore, kindness, the infinite kindness of God, doesn't discern between darkness and light. In other words, infinite of God, we can be kind to evil as well. Kinyan, like the Pasuk describes it, Shmamesh means a, uh, a spider. It can be held in one's fingers. And it finds itself in a royal chamber. In other words, sometimes you can have a, a spider web in a, in a uh, king's throne room and nobody pays attention to it. Mishom da is considering the fact that a spider ate some keten erka. It's so insignificant that nobody even bothers removing it. <speaking in> he <Hebrew> and finds itself in the exalted talents of a king. the <speaking in Hebrew> no one pays attention to it because it's insignificant, <speaking> in <Hebrew> Similarly, it's conceivable that Avraham's kindness should extend so low that even Yeshmal should be included in the service of the aged. But that's no good. It's undesirable, because the bottom line is that Yeshmal is klipo, that a, a king's throne room does not. Shouldn't have spider webs in it. would say, well, they're so small. Who cares? They have to be perfect, right? And the Ma'amer argues that the reason Avram produced a Yisshmo is because he didn't engage in Avodas Hashem initially by the employing of the ego. How counterintuitive! In other words, Avram should have started as Avodas Hashem on a lower level, on a less ideal level, and he wouldn't have produced a Yeshmal. Says the Rebbe, line sixty-four this explains it is necessary for a Talmud to begin his life with a certain arrogance. 164th an eighth of an eighth of ego. The reality is what we do down here is reflected on high. In other words, the same thing is replicated on high. Kiruach, The spirit of man. brings forward um, a spirit which ascends upwards, and brings the spirit from on high down. The initiation of the Talmud below, the Talmud in his service to God with ego. It affects on high a countering with a divine ego that there should be a supernal ego mirroring the Talmud Chochem's ego. Now understand what this Maimon is saying. You're dealing with a person who's called the disciple of Chochem, which means his natural tendency is that he's going to serve Hashem with Biddle. And the Maimon says, no, 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 no. Don't begin your service of God with a Talmud Chochem. Begin with Shminas of Incorporate ego, incorporate Metzius into your Avadis Hashem. Why? Because if you will incorporate into your Avadis Hashem ego, Hashem will reciprocate with an ego of His own. Now understand what this means. Everything, I talked about this in the last class, everything that we do is mirrored on high, but inversely. In us, our relationship with God is going up. In godliness, so to speak, godliness relationship with the world is coming down. So when you say, if I'm going to be arrogant, godliness will mirror my arrogance. My arrogance is acting haughty acting aloof, acting great. The divine reciprocation of that arrogance, haughtiness, and greatness is to come down to be arrogant in relationship with the world. So the idea of God manifesting in ego doesn't mean revealing the truth of God, but revealing a form that we perceive as ego. So when a Talmud Chacham shows ego, Hashem will show ego in return. The Talmud Chacham is inflating himself, Hashem is descending to a level of being inflated in relationship to the world. In other words, to be more metius, more form, more expression of external form, which is, of course, less than ideal, less than true, but necessary. And here's why. On line 66. When shows ego, the Mesh Ein Canal doesn't want to be separated from godliness. The Chophaz wants to be close to godliness. In other words, when the Talmud Chacham says, The motivation for my relationship with God is my ambition, my hunger for meaning and purpose. It elicits from God Almighty an ego from his perspective. What does that mean? God says, I am great in relationship with the world, I care. And what happens when God says, I am great in relationship with the world, I care? He doesn't tolerate no good. may is better to be disgusted by the evil. Or Qumai as the says, I despise Esau. God and His truth is so far removed from His world that good and evil is equal. He doesn't care. In other words, when one is too far removed from this world, the result is that as far as the world is concerned, there is a neglect. So Avraham's loyalty to Hashem, because he never employed Metziath and Ego, He created Yishmol. Avraham created Yishmol because he was so far removed from the material world that he didn't care that the material world would be an inexact representation of himself. Had Avraham began his life using ego, there wouldn't have been a Yishmol. That's incredible. So, Avraham skipping a step, so to speak, and he had to skip a step, that was his level, is the reason for a So the Gemara says, Atam Kacham must employ an ego, because you're employing an ego creates a Reciprocal ego from on high, which says, I care about the little things that happen in this world. I'm not going to tolerate uh, a spider in a royal chamber and, and the like. Because God descends to be arrogant over the arrogant. He raises himself, and raises himself doesn't mean go farther away, it means come down to be raised from, and to disregard those who are arrogant, which are the sinners, and that's why they're destroyed, that's why their presence is disallowed. says the Rebbe, as opposed to Avraham, who failed to employ ego in his initial stages of Avaidah, and as a consequence, and as a consequence, and as a consequence, Avraham's exaltedness was beyond exaltedness. In other words, Avraham was in such a high level that it wasn't ego. His being removed from the world was such that to him the world was insignificant. And therefore, he was able to produce a yishmo. this is only, kish Avraham was higher than ego. And as a result, little details, so to speak, go unnoticed and he produces a yishmo. misgo one is on a lower level. We're, Arrogance, ambition, meism is important as I nazian label the One is more particular, that there shouldn't be a light which is flowing to the evil, which is a very, very profound message. The message, of course, is sometimes people become so great that they stop caring about little details, and that's no good. In the case of Avraham Avinu, it was no good because he started his life on that higher level. What about the fact that the Pusach states that there is a spider in the royal chambers this is only when he's not being paid attention to because the king is too great from being involved in something so insignificant so you want the king to come down and to establish an ego which is a lower level of the king when the king of course is God Almighty to care about those little details and then he's going to dispose of everything that's no good Ava Kasharait Alaj Giach when he chooses to oversee Yatava Silamecholi will command to remove it from his chambers. Vizarak Kishabola Klau Geyas Vesnas it's only when he the king descends to be arrogant over his world. Oz Yakbit only then is he particular Shale, Yakabala Klipas that Klipas shouldn't be able to be sustained when he's not arrogant, in other words, he's removed from his world beyond being above his world, it's all insignificant, nothing is consequential, and therefore, and Klippe can exist as well. So it turns out that the human ego is not only helpful to the human being, it's helpful to on high our ego, gets Hashem to manifest an ego that we should care about little things because we're not such big Hasidim, we're little Hasidim, so we worry about such things and Hashem worries about such things reciprocally. There, who has the apostolic state, Hashem, Hashem has raised up His hand. And again, Hashem's raising up His hand doesn't mean removing it from the world, but rather manifesting to being above the world in a raised way. And as a result, and you don't see evil. Peter, when Hashem's hand is lowered to be above the world. In a condition which we would call arrogance in relationship with creation, the evil are destroyed. The light of godliness doesn't reach. They will never see the light of godliness. But when Hashem is paying attention, klipa cannot be sustained by godliness. They shouldn't receive. As the Pasuk also says, and I'm going to translate this Pasuk as I translated the Pasuk before, although the wording is a bit difficult. Hashem. When Hashem is exalted above the nations, the nations are destroyed. Mashinah Mehem, What happens of the nations when Hashem is Ramahomithnaseh, is exalted above them, that lefishu because He has raised Himself over them, and from God's perspective, it means He has descended to be raised over them, is it affect effective in what is to them an adverse way, but if he's in his truth, he tolerates it all, kanal. So this Maimit advocates very clearly and very powerfully not only the tolerance of the ego, but the necessity of it on in an initial step, not just in the psychology of a person, but in the mysticism. We, the wants, we should serve him on a lower level so that we care about the world in a more basic way so that he should care about the world in a basic way and we deal with the kind of junk that if we were in a higher level we'd simply not pay attention to it but it would be there continues the Maimon line 77 that's in the beginning in order to clean a house you've got to have an ego but then one transcends the ego and becomes loyal to God on a level where there is no s- center of self. There is only God. And then, is no longer necessary to be ego-invested in our avaydes Hashem. To have Hashem manifest an ego of His own. To deal with the clip in this world because the clip is already gone. Because it's gone. In other words, when Mashiach comes, the clipers are cleaned out, we can all serve Hashem on the level of Avram Avinu. What about Avram Avinu? Why did Avram produce a Yishmal if Avram was in this higher level? And the answer, Rabbi Isaiah, is because you've got to go through step one before step two. The reason Avram produced a Yishmal, even though he was in the higher level, is Lafisha, Nimtel Levavineman Gambat his life started out on a level of such perfection that he simply didn't pay attention to the negative aspects in the world that were insignificant to him. He was able to produce a Yishmol. Which is why he produced a Yishmol. To one who doesn't deserve. It's all the same to him. So, in other words, it wasn't that Avraham, the, the, the reality is Avraham was so loyal to God that he was above the need for an ego. But as it turned out, there's a side effect which is not favorable. And we are told, invest ego at the outside of Yraved Hashem, to counteract the Kleepa in the world, and only then transcend once the Kleeper has been defeated to an egoless level, in which case you have no concerns of the Kleeper because they've already been cleansed. Aval Talmud Khachum, but a student of Chochmo, even though his natural tendency of bitl, is told as Begins his service to God Almighty with his ego. That Gam, in other words, even though naturally he can be above it, he must employ his form in Avoida at the beginning. That Gam, Bama is Bain, in fact, the very involvement in intellectualizing about God is itself ego. That when one intellectually engages in the study of B'chin, as Malavis studying godliness that's manifest and that's uh, hidden. And this intellectual meditation arouses his passions. The very intellectual pursuit is ego. Because there is a notion of being a student of knowledge, and the person believes that the concepts as he understands them are have substance. In other words, in relationship to God, any intellectualization about him is nothing. And the intellectual things, listen, I'm such a smart guy, I understood it so well. My mind and my ideas are great and profound. To be sure, whatever he understands isn't the truth anyway. God is beyond any kind of godly manifestation. And therefore, my very intellectual pursuit and the ideas that I am creating our ego. This very contemplation, is ultimately unnecessary. One has perfected himself and transcended from step A, which is ego, to step B, which is beyond ego, to be one with the the of on a level where there is no I, there is no self. As we had in one of the earlier ma'amarim, and one is truly bottled Hashem, they can't even think. And what happens then? You take the ego, which preserved you and got you to that point, and you throw it in the garbage. And the ego, which preserved you and protected you, is now unnecessary, like the husks and the outer protection of a wheat, which preserved the wheat for the duration of its growth, and now is thrown in the garbage. In the same vein, all of the intellectualization that he did in his earlier stage, as he served Hashem on the initial ego based level. They're secondary to the primary. What is the primary? Not only is there only God, there isn't even a me. One is able to touch the truth. Of godliness, call time, any reason, any logic. Which addresses levels of godliness is completely inconsequential compared to God that He exists in relationship with Himself. As the pasuk says, and the altar celebrates. I have no desires in the heavens. I have no secondary priorities on the earth. Says the Rebbe and all of this Yina explains why the Gemara uses the husks of a wheat and a wheat as an illustration for an ego and a Talmud Chacham. of as the husk in the shell and the protective outer layer, Shushim guards the wheat initially from too much heat and too much moisture the same is true in Anish. where every Jewish soul is planted, and then it grows, but it grows Mulmata from a lower level to a higher level. And in the initial stages, if we don't have that protection, we could rot or we could burn the light would be destroyed and lost too much passion too much fire what has fire been in this case material obsessions which is the passions of desire and so forth or we would also spiritually rat because of a callousness a coldness which is represented by this moisture, laziness, laziness, which is equal to the deterioration of the seed. So we protect our avodah with an outer shell, which is ego. It's sustained and it grows nothing can stand in its way. What preserves the yid in its initial step of his avodahs Hashem? Arrogance, ego, which a person has at the outset, if doesn't want to be separated from from God Almighty, who covet? and separation from God would be the equivalent of mystically, spiritually rotting, Oil of being burnt up, and the passions of desire and so forth, and the arrogance that says I am too important to fail God, my spiritual ambitions are important enough for me to overcome my laziness. My lust, and therefore the sevelas, it it bears the brunt of mash, everything my animal soul throws at me, from passion and from indifference mashal and it is this initial ego that preserves that the neshama inside the person. Chayyil lech v'tameich v'gotol tamar ba'avav yidav continues to grow spiritually. Ah, chenigdalah b'shleimus it matures. Ukomayshikosav as it's described in the pasuk, nevavah gitzamach hasadav a gamer the Jewish people grow like grass in a field. Vatirbi v'tigdily b'chulu and they grow up. V'achashen ishleimus and when a Jew achieves a level of wholesomeness in Aveidah Hashem, you throw away the ego. You dispose of that secondary component for and then there is a possibility that Haasiri, one tenth year kodesh of will be a chokma bittul Hashem, and so forth. Line ninety-seven. And what this represents is when a Jewish person reaches a maturation in Avodes Hashem, azai who becomes attached to God Almighty is an even intellectualization about God which before protected his identity as a Jew he's loyal to God and God alone and it's first an ego and then the transcendence of it and the same is true as God reciprocates what we do in Hashem returning or mirroring our avoid the way it is is as follows, initially, God gives of himself to his creation, an arrogance, a conceit, which is a descent to a level of caring about nonsense, so to speak, which is from a mystical perspective, a secondary idea, it's a shield, it's a sheath, it's a husk, that the light of God shouldn't rot or be burnt up. which is Klipis' desire to draw from kedusha because God lowers Himself to be to be above the creation. But when the Jew the neshama matures by growing. Into 18,000 worlds of the Tzaddik it's no longer necessary for the person and therefore it's no longer necessary for Hashem to communicate to us the secondary component and then when we achieve transcendence of ego and acquiescence and a oneness to God which is beyond our intellectual connection to Him Hashem reveals to us a higher truth and v'chol zmanch le nimre hakri, and so long as we haven't achieved this level, patem anamaisa kenal vadal, we can't achieve holiness. It says the Rebbe v'zehu. This explains the Gemara that says the Talmud Chacham tzarechlias be gasus shminis shabes shminis. Talmud must have one sixty fourth portion ego. That ego is a necessary first step. V'u chelik samach dalad. That's one sixty fourth. V'le chelik samach gimel. Not one sixty third. V'u gas, which would have a too severe a connotation of arrogance. Ach afapikain. But whatever the case is, 164th ego you must have, however, it's like the shield that protects a wheat crowns it. Initially, it's the crown of arrogance and pride. It protects us from all, no good, and we grow. But eventually we transcend it. Ochmei, kain lamal, the same is true on Haim'at, the Le'ezeruah tzaddik v'cholig al Mighty crowns the seed of the tzaddik which has been planted, the Geisha'elian, divine arrogance, which is God descending to be above the creation. Ochmei Shekazavad the Taita describes Hashem Moloch, Hashem as a king, gay, lovish, puts on a garment of gaiva, to have a relationship with his world, v'cholu, v'dala, and so forth. 107. V'zehuah, this is the meaning of the Pasuk. When God Almighty rides on his horses, his wagon is one of salvation. sus. Susacha means two times sus. And sus, horse, is based from sag. It's two times 63, which is the idea of gas. The divine name, sag, of Kedusha, which is generally the idea of kesed, has the same, it's the idea of arrogance. It's a very high level. But not so high as to have no relationship with the world. Yehdua it is shu'avaiem mili alav acholu. It's the name of God with the aleph. V'hai in other words, kasharavov the shem avayem mili of the letter vav has an aleph within it, which means how the vav, which means bringing God down, down, hovers above. But emes bazehu, the idea is inyan lebechinas reimus lam shalach al yene bevav the shem that God should descend to be above His world. The light shouldn't go where it should, which is the idea of the aforementioned uh, Gaiva. Go to line 114. And this is the idea of God Almighty throws the horse and its rider Roma, into the sea. Rama means to raise up, and Rama means to throw down. there's two translations of the word Rama. Aleph in Yerevan to raise up. Aleph in the second is to throw down. Says the it's exactly the same thing. The raising of Hashem above the world throws the Klipper down. God raises himself above the world as opposed to having no relationship with the world. Raises himself above the arrogant. God is above the This is why. When God raises his hand. To be above his creation. It destroys what is not good. And as a consequence. It throws into the sea. Or the riders of the Pharaoh. And his armies. It's really one of the same thing. Because God has lowered himself. To be above his world. God is particular. There should be no flow of life. There should be no flow of life. So. The mime is teaching us that the necessity for ego isn't only in our best interest, it is so to speak in the divine best interest as well. This is an awesome lesson, it's a great revelation, and it's actually a mime about today.